glad you've come back this afternoon to be with us. We are continuing our series on Sunday afternoons through the book of Acts. And today we have come to Acts chapter 19. We've come to Paul's third missionary journey, which is primarily recorded by his time in Ephesus. And if you remember when we were getting to the end of chapter 18, we saw how Paul stopped briefly in Ephesus at the end of his second journey. And if you just look back at Acts 18 and verse 20, it says that when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so those four verses near the end of chapter 18 actually contain the end of Paul's second missionary journey and the beginning of his third one. Remember, they always end and begin in Antioch. And so just as Paul intended when he left Ephesus, he does have the opportunity to return, and that's what chapter 19 is all about. So we will begin in chapter 19, reading verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So what we've just read is that Paul passes through the inland country. That signifies that he took a northern route to get to Ephesus. And when he gets there, he finds some disciples. And we read about this exchange that he has with them. And it's a very helpful exchange for us. I'm very thankful that the Lord preserved this account for us because in this conversation and in this interaction, we actually learn a lot of things about baptism. But first of all, I want us to get the story straight. So Paul asked in verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And then they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So that raises a lot of questions. And I want you to notice what Paul does next. You know, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? They say, well, we don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit. And he doesn't just like launch into some great explanation of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't assume that he understands what they've done or what they believe. The very next thing that Paul does is he asks a follow-up question. So he says in verse 3, into what then were you baptized? And then they said, into John's baptism. And now Paul has the information that he needs, so he knows how to respond. 
You know, over and over again, we've been seeing how when Paul goes to a place that he reasons with people and he persuades people. And we've talked about the importance of listening and understanding where other people are at. And so now, well, now when Paul understands what the hangup is, he says in verse four, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, but he was really pointing people to Jesus. And in verse five, it says on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so again, the problem was that they had some incomplete information. It reminds us of Apollos at the end of chapter 18. Remember, Apollos was preaching in Ephesus before Priscilla and Aquila corrected him. And his problem was that though he spoke boldly and though he taught accurately the things that he knew, he knew only the baptism of John. And so, it's possible that these disciples that Paul comes across here in Ephesus would be people who had heard the partial truth from Apollos before his understanding had been made more accurate. Another thing that's, import- that's interesting to notice here is that Apollos is now in Corinth, according to verse 1, and Paul is now in Ephesus, and so they've sort of just switched places Uh, Apollos is helping the brethren Paul had previously worked with in Corinth, and now Paul is working with the brethren that Apollos previously worked with in Ephesus. But in any case, these disciples had only been baptized into John's baptism and not into Christ. And so because they had not yet done that, they still needed to do it. Now, here's where this is helpful for us. There are a lot of people who have been baptized into various things and for various reasons. But being baptized into Christ is something that everybody needs to make sure that they do one time. And since these disciples hadn't done it, that's why they needed to do it. But this text also helps us to recognize some things that matter and some things that don't. If you notice, when Paul is trying to understand where these disciples are at and what it is that they need to do, he asks them two different questions in verses 2 and 3. The first question was, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And the second question is, into what then were you baptized? Those are really the key details. Those are the things that matter. Did you receive the Spirit? Were you baptized into Christ? Notice the things that he doesn't ask about. He doesn't ask, who baptized you? He doesn't ask, what building were you baptized in? He doesn't ask those questions because those details don't matter. He asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And into what were you baptized? What Paul is really trying to understand is whether these disciples have been obedient to the baptism that Jesus has proclaimed. Have they been obedient to the baptism that Jesus commanded for being forgiven of their sins and being united with him? Because the conclusion is, if you have been baptized for any other reason, then you still need to be baptized. And so, verse 5 tells us that on hearing this, They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. We'll say some more about that at the end. But you might also notice that there's a very close connection here between belief and baptism. 
And these words are almost used interchangeably in this text. We notice something similar with the Philippian jailer back in chapter 16, but it's even stronger here. If you look in verse 2, he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And then in verse 3, into what then were you baptized? And then in verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized. And so when Paul asked them about when they believed in verse 2, he sort of just assumes that they would have been baptized at the time that they believed. And what we see consistently throughout Scripture is that conversion is all one thing. When you really come to believe in Jesus, that's when you are willing to repent of your sins. That's when you're willing to submit to baptism. It's all one total package. And so, uh, baptism is really just a part of true belief. It is faith made manifest. But then in verses 6 and 7, it says that when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. Now, this might be a little bit confusing to us, and it does make us wonder what Paul meant when he asked his question in verse 2. Remember, his question was, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I think that there's maybe two different ways that that question could be asked. There's a sense in which everyone who has been baptized into Jesus receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter promised in Acts 2 and verse 38. That the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off. If we will be baptized into Jesus, we will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But there's also a sense in which the apostles could uniquely pass on the miraculous gifts of the Spirit to baptized believers by laying their hands on them like we saw back in chapter 8 when the apostles did that in a village of Samaria. And so regardless of what Paul is asking in verse 2, both are actually accomplished by the end of this. They do receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in the same way you and I do when they are baptized and they receive the Spirit. But then they also receive the Spirit in a unique and powerful way when the apostle Paul lays his hands on them and they receive the ability to speak in tongues and prophesy. And so we see that uh, whatever Paul was referring to in verse 2, um, they have certainly received the Spirit by the end. So let's look at verses 8 through 10 next. It says, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So we've seen this enough times now. We understand what Paul's normal pattern is, and he keeps to that pattern here in Ephesus. He shows up, he does his thing, he goes to the synagogue, he reasons, he persuades, he keeps at it until he gets kicked out, but then he takes the party somewhere else, and so he keeps teaching in the school of Tyrannus. Uh, there are some people who think that maybe he was a Christian, 
There are others who think that maybe he just had some space that maybe was available for free or for rental. But all of a sudden, two years go by, and it tells us that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so what we see is that Paul has a very fruitful ministry in Ephesus. And he's there for longer than anywhere else, even longer than he stayed in Corinth. And this would also be the time when he wrote 1 Corinthians. So if you can sort of get your mind into the epistles, you can think about how while Paul was here in Ephesus, this would be the time that he's addressing some of those problems that we read about in 1 Corinthians. But now, verse 11 goes on to tell us about a new development. It says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Verse 11 is worded kind of funny if you think about it. It says that Paul was doing extraordinary miracles, I guess as opposed to the ordinary miracles. The New King James Version says that he was doing unusual miracles, again as opposed to the usual miracles. But at this point in Paul's ministry, we have sort of come to expect these kinds of things to characterize his work in a place. And so the miracles are, in a sense, usual for him. But these are actually extraordinary or unusual miracles. And what makes them unusual is in verse 12, that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So God is allowing these items of clothing to act almost like extensions of Paul. That the power that he has been granted to heal and cast out spirits sort of is like in these materials as they go out. It's sort of like in chapter 5 in verse 15. Back there we read about how Peter could pass by people and even his shadow would fall on them and they could be healed. And so again, God had done a similar thing with Peter, where he sort of created an unusual miracle, an extension of his person, in a sense. And as we've been noticing the Peter-Paul connections in the book of Acts, this would be another one for us to notice. Another similar thing 
between Peter in the first half and Paul in the second. But all of this leads to this uh, episode with these traveling Jewish exorcists. And they see the power that Paul has, and almost like Simon the sorcerer back in chapter 8. They see what Paul is doing, and they think, we want that. We want to be able to do that. We want to use that for ourselves. And so what they did in verse 13 was they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. And I'll just read verses 14 through 16 again, just for sheer entertainment value. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Hands down, this is one of the most laugh-out-loud funny sections in the whole Bible. So, if you ever want to make a comedy from a Bible scene, here's a good source material. But it illustrates a really important principle here, and that's really what we need to appreciate. And the principle is this, that doing something in someone's name doesn't mean just saying it out loud. It means doing it by their authority. You know, you could claim to do any number of things in the name of the Lord Jesus, and that doesn't mean that you are. You know, you could go out and start murdering people in the name of the Lord Jesus. That doesn't mean that it is in his name, just because you say so. When a police officer comes to the door and says, open up in the name of the law, he's not just saying magic words, you know. It's not like that's the password, open sesame, and then the door opens. No, when a police officer says, open up in the name of the law, what he means is he's got the law backing his actions. He's stating a fact. He's communicating that he has the full authority of the law in what he's doing. And so because these people don't actually have the authority of Jesus, they end up running away in embarrassing fashion, naked and wounded. Now, as you might imagine, this becomes quite a sensational headline in Ephesus. Everybody starts to talk about it. Everybody knows about what happens. And everybody comes to hear about this. But it tells us that fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being extolled. Now, in verse 18, we see another development here. And it says, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's another one of our drumbeat verses in the book of Acts. We tried to notice how really the book of Acts is a New Testament conquest story. It's about spiritual conquest. And no matter what opposition the gospel faces, the power of God continues to triumph. And so all of this is connected in Ephesus. Paul is doing extraordinary miracles. People who are trying to 
take his authority and use it uh, inappropriately, are made to be ashamed. But then there are others who are more and more devoted to the Lord, so much so that they are demonstrating extraordinary acts of repentance. And all of this shows us the power of God's word. Now, I do want us to notice something about the nature of repentance here in Ephesus. It talks about these believers who came and they brought their books together and burned them in verse 19. These were magic books that they had previously used in some kind of sorcery. Doesn't that show us the sincerity of their repentance? They got rid of their old sinful practices. They didn't want anything to do with them anymore. They realized that there was no going back. It wasn't like, okay, well, we'll set those things aside and we won't look at them anymore. No, that wasn't enough for them. They burned the books. You know, there might be some people who would have seen this scene and thought, that's pretty wasteful, you know? Like, shouldn't you go find, like, a Goodwill somewhere and give it away? Maybe somebody else would like those books. Or I'll tell you what, what would be even better is you could sell those books and you could sure help a lot of people with 50,000 pieces of silver. But see, what these brethren understood is that they hated the sin. They didn't want anything to do with it anymore. And they didn't want anybody else to have anything to do with it. And so burning the books was a great sign of true repentance. Well, now let's look at the last section in the text. This is a longer section, but we'll read about Paul's end, the end of Paul's time in Ephesus, starting here in verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. 
And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, in the narrative of Acts, this section really moves the narrative towards the final action of the book. What we've just seen is Paul has completed his longest and most fruitful stint anywhere. He's enjoyed a lot of uh, fruitfulness in Ephesus. And as he is getting to the end of his time, he decides that he's about ready to move on, and so he starts to make some plans. He decides that he will pass through Macedonia and Achaia, and then he will make his way to Jerusalem, and ultimately, he wants to go to Rome. And right as he's deciding to do all of that, the bottom falls out from under him in Ephesus. And it happens because of a disturbance from the silversmiths. Wouldn't you know that when you start convincing people that they shouldn't worship idols, People who make idols don't like that very much. Starts to cut into their profits. And so there's this silversmith named Demetrius, and he gets the other tradesmen together, and they form a little union or something like that, and they get really irritated and really upset, and they start getting riled up, and he says, we can't let this happen. We depend on this religion for our wealth. And, oh yeah, we also care about the goddess and her magnificence. You can kind of see what's most important to Demetrius and the craftsmen. Primarily, they are concerned about their profits. But if they can use religion to get people all on their side, they will do that. And so the city quickly descends into chaos. And this is very reminiscent of what we've seen in a few other places now. This is very similar to what we saw in Thessalonica in chapter 17. It's also very similar to what we saw in Corinth in chapter 18. But here in chapter 19 in Ephesus, they drag Gaius and Aristarchus into this outdoor theater, which I read could hold about 25,000 people. And in verse 30, Paul actually wants to go in among the crowd. I don't know what he thinks he's going to accomplish by charging headlong into a mob, but the brethren restrain him. And I think that that was probably a wise decision on their behalf. This might be an instance of Paul being a little overzealous. But everyone is shouting and the city is filled with confusion. And in verse 32, we even have this statement. That some cried out one thing and some another for the assembly was in confusion. 
And most of them did not know why they had come together. Such is the nature of a mob. Sometimes people just get caught up in the emotion and they don't even know why they're upset, but that is the scene. And so for just a moment, it looks like they're going to let this guy named Alexander speak. They all get quiet. It's like, okay, somebody's got something to say. And then somebody realizes, oh, that guy's a Jew. And so that sets them off again. I don't know if they were trying to distance themselves as Jews from the Christians, or I don't know if Alexander was a Jewish Christian or what was going on, but when they recognize he's Jewish, they don't want to listen to him, and they start up again, and for two more hours, they cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And finally, in verse 35, the town clerk shows up. And when I think of a clerk, I think of somebody who, like, you know, sits in a little drab office and, like, you know, punches in numbers on a keyboard. But the better translation would probably be something like the mayor. This is like the town mayor who shows up. And he says, okay, everybody settle down. We all know the truth about Artemis. Don't get so worked up about this. If you've got something legal to deal with, well, then go through the proper channels. But if you guys let this go much further... We're going to get in trouble for having a disorderly riot. I have to say, I'm not sure that this town clerk really understands Paul's preaching. He seems to say that Paul is not really threatening us with what he says, but if he had listened to what Paul said, I think that he would have been a little more offended. But in any case, his reasoning works. It persuades the crowd to settle down. And in verse 41, it says, when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Interesting fact there, that word assembly is the same word that's translated church, that's ecclesia. This is a group of people who have been called out and come together. Obviously, this is not a Christian church, but a very unchristian church. But this concludes the chapter, and it concludes Paul's time in Ephesus, and this is what sends him forward to complete his third missionary journey. Now, we have some conclusions that we can draw from this chapter. And I think that these conclusions are, are very important to us. And chapter 19 is an important chapter for these conclusions. And the first is that we see that there is one baptism that unites all of the Lord's people. As we've seen here with Paul's conversation with these disciples that he finds in Ephesus, it's when we have been baptized into Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the baptism that every one of us needs to have been receptive to. You see this kind of language in a few other places in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 4, when Paul is talking about the unity of the Spirit, something that we all have in common as the Lord's people, he lists a number of things that we have in common amongst ourselves. And in verse 4, he says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
And so just as we understand that we can't be Christians if we have a different Lord, or we can't be Christians if we have a different God, what this text would lead us to understand is that we can't be Christians without having participated in this one baptism. And that's consistent with what we see in Acts 19 is that Paul is telling them that if you have not yet been baptized into Christ, you still need to do that. Similar statement in Galatians 3, in verse 27. Here Paul writes, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so now might be a good time for you to think about whether or not you've done that. One good question to ask is this. Do you believe that you were saved before you were baptized? If so, well, how were you saved while being outside of Christ? See, what we are coming to understand from the scriptures is that we ought to be baptized into Christ to put on Christ. And so maybe you were baptized as a sign or a symbol of the salvation that you believed you already had. Or maybe you were baptized into some church or denomination. But that's not the one baptism that we read about. If you have never been baptized into Christ, then you need to do that just like these disciples in Ephesus did. But a second conclusion that we can draw from this chapter is that doing something in Jesus' name means doing it by his authority. It's really interesting the way that we see this kind of language used in this chapter. First of all, back up in verse 5, when those disciples understood the baptism that they needed to receive, it says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were being baptized by his authority. They were doing things according to his will. It's contrasted very clearly with the seven sons of Sceva trying to cast out the evil spirit. You know, they try to invoke the name of Jesus. They say in verse 13, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And just saying it didn't make it so. It didn't make it, 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 didn't make it uh, according to his authority or his power. It kind of reminds me of the discussion in 1 Corinthians 11. You know, when Paul is correcting the brethren in Corinth about the way that they observe the Lord's Supper, he says something very strong to them in verse 20. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Well, why not? Why wasn't it the Lord's Supper? Was it because they stopped calling it the Lord's Supper? I'm sure they still called it that. But Paul's point is that it didn't matter what they called it, they weren't actually honoring the Lord when they did it. And so it wouldn't be right to call it that any longer. I think there are so many applications when we understand this principle correctly. That doing something in Jesus' name is about what we do, not what we say. And I'm going to suggest some things that might be a little bit challenging, so consider them for what they're worth. 
But what about the name that we put on our building? Is that what makes us a church of Christ? That we have the letters on the sign? No, I believe we are a church of Christ because we are submitting to Christ's authority. We belong to him and we are doing things according to his will. We're also a church of God. We could put that on our sign if we want to. It might lead to a lot of uh, interesting conversations with people who think we're a part of a different group, but that would be biblical. We could also put the church at Lawrenceville on our sign, and we would still be just as much a church of Christ as we are now. Because what matters is that we are actually submitting to Christ's authority. It's not just what we say. Think about baptism. We noted in verse 5 that these disciples were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When somebody is baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, is that something that you say or is that something that you do? I think sometimes we have the idea that unless we say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that it doesn't quite stick, it doesn't quite count. But no, that's not an incantation. It's a declaration. We're just making it clear that this is the authority that we are acting on. And so whether or not we say those words out loud doesn't mean we're actually doing it by God's authority. And finally, what about prayer? You know, we have a habit of ending almost all of our prayers with the words, in Jesus' name, right? Well, can you find a prayer in the Bible that ends that way? I think sometimes for us, it would almost feel wrong to end a prayer without saying in Jesus' name. But when you look to the prayers in the Bible, I can't find one that actually has those words. Now, does that mean that we can't say it? Of course not. It's a fine thing to say. It's a fine thing for us to remind ourselves of. But it's not a magic formula that gives our prayers wings and the ability to pass through the ceiling. You can pray in Jesus' name without saying the words in Jesus' name. But praying in Jesus' name means praying by his authority, with a desire for his will to be done in our lives. And so this is a very important principle for us to understand. That doing something in Jesus' name is doing it by his authority. It's not that what we say, I'm sorry, doing something in Jesus' name is what we do by his authority, not what we say is by his authority. And then thirdly, we see a really good lesson here about repentance. Repentance is deciding you will leave your sins never to return. The scene that we saw in verse 19 is one of my favorite depictions of repentance in the whole Bible. When it talks about those who had practiced magic arts, bringing their books together and burning them in the sight of all. And it says that they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. What you see here is saints who are so zealous for the Lord that their zeal for him is consuming everything else in their lives, literally. These books that were worth great sums of money and had once been very important to them go up in smoke and they rejoice about it because they know that they found something better. 
And they know that what they have left behind is something that they never, ever, ever want to go back to. They realized that they couldn't put their trust in Jesus while keeping their magic books, and so they burned them. They made it clear that they were leaving them never to return. This ought to be our attitude every time that we sin. Whenever we discover something sinful in our lives, we need to have enough zeal for the Lord to give it up for good. Now, it's not enough to think, I'll just resist that temptation this time. Well, this time I'll just deny myself. This time I just won't do it. And to sort of leave the door open for next time. No, there needs to be a resolute purposefulness in our hearts that never, ever am I going to give in to this thing. Now, does that mean that we will never stumble? Does that mean that we will never be tripped up or commit sin? Of course not. But it means that we ought to be purposing in our hearts every time that we're going to be faithful to the Lord. We need to be living in a state of constant repentance, constantly turning from our sins, and constantly renewing our sincere dedication to following Jesus. When we step into the darkness, let us not walk in the darkness, but let's get back in the light. Let's confess our sins, let's repent of them, and let's renew our commitment to being faithful to the Lord for the rest of our lives. That's the lesson that I have for you this afternoon. I appreciate you being here, and I hope that it was encouraging to you. And there might be somebody here who realizes that there's something that you need to do based on the examples that we've seen in these scriptures. Again, I think that these examples are very relevant to us, very instructional for us, and very persuasive. And so if you realize that you have not been baptized into Jesus, and you have not received the gift of the Spirit, then you have the opportunity to be like these people and to be baptized into Jesus before you leave. You might realize that you've got some magic books still hanging around. Maybe literally, maybe figuratively. Maybe you've still got some sins that you're holding on to. Would you decide to repent of those? Decide to burn them, never to return. Knowing that if you stumble, that you can always find forgiveness, but at the same time, deciding in your heart that you will be faithful to the Lord every day, every moment, for the rest of your life. That's what repentance is like. And so there might be somebody here who needs to make some kind of public confession or even to just ask for prayers, or maybe it's something that you just need to deal with in your seats right now while we are singing this song. But if we can help you in some way, we want to invite you to come to the front. Let us know how while we stand together and sing.